Escape to Ocean City, Maryland, and discover a place that just feels lighter, where every day feels like Saturday and French fries are a food group, where flip-flops are always in fashion and seafood is always in season, where the boardwalk is bustling and the beach is right outside your door, where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com. So many teenagers waiting to be adopted from foster care feel like their lives are over. They've given up hope of having a permanent home and are terrified of aging out with no support system. Right now, more than 113,000 children are waiting to be adopted in the U.S. The Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption is dedicated to finding them the right family before it's too late. Learn how you can help at davethomasfoundation.org slash learn more. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm John Lovett. I'm Tommy Vitor. On today's show, Donald Trump pivots to the general election with a series of speeches that remind us of why he lost the last one. And later, Melissa Murray and Andrew Weissman talk to Lovett about all the latest legal news and their new book, The Trump Indictments. Ooh. Ooh. What's that about? <laughs> but first, Trump won the South Carolina primary on Saturday, beating Nikki Haley by 20 points, 60 to 40%. Uh, this is the first time a Republican who wasn't the incumbent president won the first four primary contests, a full sweep, uh, and certainly the first time a candidate did so while facing 91 felony counts. Nikki Haley lost the home state. She also served as governor. She has also lost her Coke network funding, uh, but she's heard our prayers and said that she'll be staying in the race through Super Tuesday. Let's take a listen. Today in South Carolina, we're getting around 40% of the vote. That. That's about what that's about what we got in New Hampshire too. I'm going to count it. I know 40% is not 50%. But I also know 40% is not some tiny group. I said earlier this week that no matter what happens in South Carolina, I would continue to run for president. I'm a woman of my word. To Michigan tomorrow. And we're headed to the Super Tuesday states throughout all of next week. Nikki! You can hear my Nikki, voice in there. It's like Nikki. a sad Howard Dean Iowa speech. It's awesome. There. It's awesome. 40%. Look at that. So much. Moral victory. Go, was, Nikki. Was it 38.6? Uh, no, it was 39.8. Ooh. It was very close. Hey, almost there. And Trump and Trump was like 59.7 or 8 or something. Mm. Uh-huh. Uh, so I know you guys were probably up late Saturday night uh, digging, night long, digging yeah. through the South Carolina Cross results. Uh, mm-hmm. Who's got any big takeaways? What do you got? Love it. So here are the, I just, from the exits, here are what I found interesting. Mm. That mm-hmm. here's who Nikki Haley won. She won moderates, but which we already knew, but the, the, and she won independents. She won people who decided this month and she won first time primary voters. And I just found that to yeah, be the late interesting. These are people that have been watching this unfold. And the late, you think the late deciders at this point would be like, I want to be with the winner. I want this to be over. But that the late deciders are saying, 
I'd like this to keep going. I thought it was, I don't know yeah. what it means. I just thought it was interesting. I kind of think that if you, and this will, this would not apply in the general election between Biden and Trump, because everyone knows them. But if you are undecided, I don't think you break towards Donald Trump because like, you know, Donald Trump, you have, you've made up your mind about Donald Trump. You love him. You love <laughs> Right, you're the loving. You're either with them or you're like, eh, what else do I yes, do? Yes, but you're dr- you're leaving your house on a Saturday to go vote in a pointless primary. Eh, you know who you know who would do that if they lived in South Carolina? This gang of assholes. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> well, and and it wouldn't be it wouldn't be that informative about the future. We'd be, we'd be <laughs> like, was, yeah, no, I know, because, I know. So Dave Weigel uh, was uh, reporting from South Carolina, and he described the four type of Haley voters as longtime superfans, okay. Republicans picking her as the strategic electable choice, independents who legitimately wanted her to be president, and Democrats who would support her as a thumbtack under Donald Trump's tires. That's us. Yeah, that's us. Yeah, yeah. Right. And the question is, how you're many not, of those not, different groups? You're not the longtime Haley fan. The I'm super a, fan. Oh, the super fan. I've only recently discovered her work. I, you know, I'm 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 exile. I'm exile. Different yeah, South Carolina you, horse. Yeah, I was gonna say you were more into the other uh, the other candidate from South we'll Carolina. We'll talk about him. We'll talk about him. <laughs> and then just the last thing I that the two other things that jumped out at me from the exits are only 13 percent of people said the most important quality is can defeat Joe Biden. Yeah, they because they don't because they read polls. Well, yeah. but because they read polls and because the vast majority of Republicans believe Donald Trump won, right? Which is always like. If you're, you know, Haley's winning people who think that she's the more electable choice, fine. But basically, Republicans believe that whoever they nominate is going to win. And do you think that's worth remembering? And then the last, just that 36% said if Trump is convicted of a crime, that's not 36% of Haley voters, it's 36% of the primary voters say that if Trump is convicted of a crime, he is unfit, which just continues the the thing, what we saw in Iowa, what we saw in New Hampshire, et cetera. Tommy, I think the big the big takeaway obviously is that the primary has been over since Iowa I was say, remains that over. That was my big one. I mean, I like apologies sure. to the cable networks that had you know ten pundit panels on a Saturday night. Like, look, we're all trying to squeeze some more life out of this primary with content, but it's it's over. I I, I had the same thought as you, uh, love it. Like, electability is just not an issue for Trump. Like, Haley's got a better case, but no one cares. I don't care. Public voters could care less. Um, uh, Trump won seventy one percent of non college educated voters. He struggled the most in counties with the highest educational attainment. Um, I saw that Trump lost voters with postgraduate degrees pretty badly. So if you got some friends in red states, you can tell them a PhD is only six years away. I just, but, but I'll say, right, I guess. Who are the, who are the PhD candidates turning out for this thing? I, it's, not, it's not in politics. Get yourself a philosophy <laughs> degree. Oh, no, we offended them one time. I was a philosophy major. Don't get mad at us. Yeah. yeah Silver yeah, linings. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I think the, the primary is pretty much over. The, uh, the Trump campaign put some numbers to that. Uh, They argued in a memo afterwards that even if you give Nikki Haley her 43% that she got in New Hampshire, which was her high watermark so far, uh, in all the contests in the upcoming weeks, um, Trump would secure the delegates needed to win the nomination by March 19th. Well, it's not a really, (laughs) I would say, you don't really need to break out the Excel spreadsheets. She hasn't won anything. And she's not on... And she said she was she is an accountant, which I didn't know. I learned that. Oh, you didn't know she was an accountant? I didn't know she was an accountant. No, no, that's really? what she always talk, brings about that when she talks about the budget. That's her most boring talking point. <laughs> that's what yeah, when as soon as she talks about the budget, my eyes glaze over. But but it's funny, it's just like we have a memo and we've we've put our smartest number crunchers on it, and because she will not win a single state, there's no path for her to become the nominee. Did you guys notice that Trump did lose to Haley in counties with a heavy military presence? 
which is just sort of interesting and notable. Oh, he that did. Maybe the attacks. Because I, I saw seventy percent of veterans voted for Trump. Yeah, I thought but that was I didn't know. Maybe they're in cities. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, she won cities, so that's what. That <laughs> yeah, right. They're probably all in Charleston. I mean, uh, Trump does keep slightly underperforming his polling average. It could be that we just have a bunch of kind of freaked out Democrats turning out to vote for Haley in these primaries. But I don't know. Notable. So that yeah, and we will find out more about that on Super Tuesday. When you talk to Dan Thursday. Oh. <laughs> well, <laughs> Oh, no, yeah. because tell what, us what Dan said about it. What's gonna? Well, you all read the message box. I hope. <laughs> yeah, I that's did, what I course. do. That's what today's pod is. We reprocess message box. Uh, so <laughs> we're gonna. Well, Dan didn't put this in his message box, but we will find out more about this on Super Tuesday because there's a lot of closed primaries. So we're yes. finally gonna know what her. Uh, I would imagine that in a closed primary that's a Republican only, she only pulls uh, 25% because she's winning around 25% of Republicans in all these states. I think that's so, exactly right. Yeah, in South Carolina, if you don't vote in the Democratic primary, you can vote in the Republican primary. Right. And so, but it'll be interesting to see, and I don't, there's been limited polling in the Super Tuesday states, but it'll be interesting to see if Trump's polling in those states matches uh, better to hit the final result just because it'll in some of the closed primaries. So we do know that look, there's a non-insignificant number of people voting in Republican primaries who, at least from their exit poll answers, seem like they will be unavailable to Trump in November. Mm-hmm. South Carolina, 31% said he's not physically or mentally fit to serve as president or physically or mentally. Maybe they picked one. Uh, 36% believe that Biden won legitimately in uh, 2020. Uh, she won those by a lot, unsurprisingly. And then more than one in five voters told uh, the AP vote cast exit polls that they won't back Trump in general election. So, you know, uh, Mike Madrid, who's a GOP strategist uh, with Latino vote, said in February of 2020, only six percent of Republican voters uh, were saying that they wouldn't support Trump in the general election, according to these exit polls. And in February of 2024, we are seeing like three times that number in polling and in some of these uh, focus groups. So I was getting excited about that. And then I decided to temper my excitement, as I always do, by looking back. So in June of 2008, a week after Hillary Clinton endorsed Obama at the famous Unity New Hampshire event, guess what percentage of Clinton voters told pollsters that they would vote for Obama in the fall? Who who, who wants to guess? 68. 72%. 54%. Fifty-four percent. Wow. Only fifty-four percent. You know what Obama ended up getting from Democrats Tell me. in, in two thousand eight? Eighty-nine percent. That event between with that where Hillary Clinton went uh, and did the Uni event, I believe that's where um, we included a classic line, which is George W. Bush and John McCain oh my God. are two sides of the same coin, and it doesn't amount to a whole lot of change. <laughs> Fucking A, man. So good. So, so good. So, so good. So, so good. So, that was your line. So good. It was your line. Not as good as Pokemon Go to the Polls, but pretty good. I will say that you could see Clinton voters warming up to Obama maybe a little more than than these Haley voters warming up to Trump. Again, because Obama was still relatively unknown. They had Donald Trump for four years. So if so, they're saying they don't want Trump, in a, maybe it's a little bit better. I, I, I do think that this is, you can, you, can, you can blur your eyes and make it a good fact, or you can blur your eyes and make it a bad fact. The reality is right now the polling is real Joe Biden up against sort of gauzy, imaginary Trump. Mm. And in some ways, that is going to be people telling pollsters that they would never vote for a convicted felon. Well, I bet if you ask them in August of 2016, if they vote for somebody who was accused credibly of sexual assault and had the had, you know, grab him by the pussy, they'd say they never vote for somebody like that either. And they come home <laughs> at the same yeah. time. I think there's a lot of people who still don't fully 
grasp that Donald Trump is about to be the Republican nominee. And once that comes into full relief, we'll hopefully come back in these polling. But I, I just think we hope. don't know. But, that, about but that. It's, that is the hope. But it is all hope that the polls will change because the polls are fucking terrible. I too am worried about the revealed preference that might come out in an election. So, you know, we have no idea what Haley voters are going to do in November, but at least what she's done for us and what she's continuing to do for us is she is giving the Biden campaign and Democrats a universe of voters that they can target with persuasion efforts. And obviously that's not going to matter too much in South Carolina, but Super Tuesday has most of the swing states. And so figuring out what percentage she gets in Michigan and Arizona and stuff like that, like we will be able to know where those voters live, the demographics of those voters, and the Biden campaign will be able to go and target Haley voters. Will you get them all? No. All you need is some. All you it, need is some. Like, and the point Dan makes, like step up, is a terrible result. Like, yes, Donald Trump is going to be the Republican nominee. Obviously, Haley is not winning. This is who the Republican Party wants. But the fact that Donald Trump has not been able to consolidate this party that mm. the results are so consistent is not a good fact for him. It just isn't. Do you? Yeah. What do you think about that, Tommy? So Dan, Dan, the title of Dan's message box for those who aren't uh, frequent readers, which fuck you if you're not. You wow, know. that's harsh. Uh, <laughs> sorry. If you're not, you don't know what you're missing. There you go. It's there you so go. it's so good there and exciting, like and, and it's a catch quick more, read. It's catch a quick more read. flies with honey. Yeah, exactly. absolutely. Sorry. The title of Dan's <laughs> message box was yet another underwhelming Trump primary win. Agree? Disagree? I want you to know something. I didn't read the message box before I also had that opinion. Great. Okay. And I just okay. want that out there. I appreciate you sure. lining up the sequencing. You, of this. Maybe you I'm should, just maybe you should write a substack. Maybe okay. you get it out before Dan. Um, I'm going to take the other side <laughs> of the Dan take here. I think 60% of the vote is a lot. I think we should be honest that Trump barely tried. I heard that he spent uh, about $1.2 million in South Carolina. He barely visited the state. Haley did like 50 some odd events. It was her home state. That's got to help her a little bit where she has universal ID. There's also just the weird fact that like this is a zombie primary. Like your your folks aren't really that fired up to turn out for you. I, well, maybe they are. I don't know. We don't really know what it does to turn out where everyone knows that the campaign is over. I do think a bunch of Democrats turned out and probably tipped the numbers a little bit in her direction. Um, so I, I don't know. Like I think he's crushing her and it is what it is. I don't know that we can look at these primary results or any primary results and extrapolate out to the general on like it, it's possible that what we're seeing from these Haley voters are people who again will not vote for Donald Trump and and things are bad for him. I certainly hope so. We j I just don't know if we I don't know if these results can tell us that because and I'm remembering that 2008 race when when we I mean the March primaries, the April primaries, and every time Hillary Clinton just mm -hmm. clobbered us in one of those primaries, in those late spring primaries, everyone's like, oh, Barack Obama's not bringing the party together. He's going to lose in November. This is going to be bad. What's happening? And then it wasn't a problem at all. Well, it wasn't a problem in part because there was a concerted effort to unite the party mm -hmm. and ultimately brought and a financial crisis and a financial crisis. <laughs> but also, but like, you know, Hillary Clinton speaks to the convention there's a, you know, a few dead enders who do sort of ridiculous things, but really, for the most part, the party obviously came together. Their policy platforms were virtually indistinguishable. Uh, you know, will Nikki Haley endorse Trump? We can hope not. We mm. can we can now be more. Look, we we've been on the side of just, she, ships just are her, burning. Just her and Chris sitting at this table with yeah. us. Yeah, new new well, Friday pod just dropped. <laughs> <laughs> John Thune, one of the last holdouts in the Senate, Republicans endorsed <sighs> Trump after this. Sooner and rather than later. The, 
Like Not that. a moment too soon. <laughs> oh, that's what you were yeah, doing. Yeah, you didn't laugh. I was like, Tommy, that's a good just, one. He didn't get it. He didn't get it. Philosophy degree over um, Even worse <laughs> than deep in thought. Even worse than Thune, there's a time story today that uh, they're they're smoothing over the tensions between uh, Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell so that Mitch McConnell can ultimately endorse but, but, him. What's funny is not even smoothing it over. Like behind the scenes, they're smoothing it over. And then Trump is like, I think he sucks. <laughs> I, I hey, just, hey. the Times was like, I mean, it has been a while since Trump brutally attacked Elaine Chow with all kinds of racist statements. So it has been a while since then. They haven't spoken since December of 2020. <laughs> okay, Trump, this is Ted Cruz territory if he endorses. Uh, Trump called Mitch McConnell's wife, Elaine Chow, who served in his cabinet, mm -hmm. Coco Chow, yep. which we all believe is a cocaine reference. Somehow she's a drug trafficker. She, served, she, she did resign in protest, so that's it. Yeah, she's with done. like seven days left. Yeah. Uh, he, called, he referred to her as Mitch's China-loving wife. Apparently these talks are being brokered by uh, Chris Lissavita, I don't know how to say his name. The Swiftboat Veterans for Truth guy yeah. who's running the Trump campaign. Chris Lasavita. And this pint-sized, high-heel-wearing lobbyist, Josh Holmes, who's just a real jerk. Can I, I and and jerk he may well be, Thomas, but you point you put this on social media. You said, of course McConnell's, again, pint-sized lobbyist is greasing the skids for Mitch's inevitable Trump endorsement. Why are you reading my tweets? Gotta keep those <laughs> lobbying shop going to afford all those high-heeled boots. Now, now, Tommy, what is it about them not being flats that's so offensive to you? What, what is it about his <sighs> stature that's so worthy of your condemnation? Perhaps he's not a tall person. Ableist I don't much? think it's his oh problem. I don't think it's a problem. Short people can be unethical. Before Isn't that we walked in here, you said that people don't get funerals. <laughs> okay, so let's just start there with this fucking bit <laughs> you're doing. Second of all, that was, I'm stealing wow. Tim Miller's joke. <laughs> Third of all, so all of you are anti-short. This guy's the scummiest little lobbyist he, ever. All in there. We sure, sure. We sure. I think we need a new segment on this on the show. Just to, just defend your tweet. And you, have, <laughs> you have to. You did the tweet. Now you have to defend it. I stand by it. I, I like it. Anyway, what do we think, Mitch McConnell? <laughs> I, 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 the more important the thing is. He's gonna, <laughs> aside from Chris Christie, aside from Chris Christie, and maybe hopefully Nikki Haley, but you know, let's be real. Uh, the whole fucking Republican Party is getting behind all of the all of the officials of the Republican Party are getting behind Donald Trump after so many of them said on the record that he was responsible for a fucking insurrection and trying to steal the election. The people who stormed this building believe they were acting on the wishes and instructions of their president. It's unbelievable. Mitch That's McConnell. Mitch McConnell. Yes. It's, it's despicable. It's despicable. But it's going to have, I mean, that has, back to those Haley voters, there is a concern that if you are a person that pulled the lever for Haley, that uh, you see every Republican politician that you voted for, everyone in the party just backing Donald Trump, that, and you're thinking, I don't like him. But this person did and this person did. I mean, it's, it's big for money. It's big for donors. That's what Mitch McConnell brings you. It's the institutional support. It's the big money donors. It's the yeah. billionaire class that kind of stepped away from Trump and thought he was, you know, kind of an untouchable for a while. That money will all come flooding back. I do think it's the a interest bit of a, groups. It, that's very true. I do think it's a permission structure. I think too. so, too. I, I think I the really permission that. that is that is so much of like the that the, the establishment getting behind Trump in 2016 gave permission for a lot of people who were hesitant to say, well, it's for the courts, it's for this. I mean, McConnell's yep. whole thing was that 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 it was worth it because we got the Supreme Court. He then hits exactly. his limit. His wife resigns in protest from the cabinet. He says, Trump has gone too far. And it was this flowers for Algernon week where they all kind of found their kind of I'm sorry. moral. <laughs> What's that? 
<laughs> because they they why the, was it flowers for Argentina? Because they a had book a, you read in eighth had, grade. Because they had a uh, I it was in fact eighth grade. Thank book. you. And but the analogy is they had a week of finding their moral courage, uh, and then right when they could have impeached it, it all it all faded back away. Well, Lane Chow left to spend more time with her cocaine. Is what Trump mm-hmm. told me. Yeah. Nothing from you two. I think. Okay. Coco Challenge. It's a callback oh. to the joke. Five so seconds. Sorry, 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 no, sorry, I think it's okay. Not, they're not all winners. We have other cocaine jokes. <laughs> we look. We have. Other, <laughs> and we have. We have some cocaine. cocaine. We have a lot of cocaine content. Today. Yeah. We actually we do uh, the clip. So uh, <laughs> just before we leave this section, Joe Cunningham, a former South Carolina Democratic congressman who's now a leader at No Labels, said that they would be interested in having Haley on the ticket. Her campaign said she's not interested. They've said that many times now. But uh, something to worry about. Our our boy Dean Phillips also said he'd be open to being uh, VP to Nikki Haley on a no labels ticket. <laughs> what oh, an embarrassing that person. That gelato's getting pretty warm. <laughs> Gotta say, get that guy. Get... <laughs> Unbelievable. Incredible. Where is everybody Incredible. on their on again, off again anxiety about no labels? I can't. I, I can't keep track. Well, they haven't been able to find a candidate. Yeah, that's and but so we're off Joe, again. in this interview, Joe Can- Joe Cunningham. Before they asked him about uh, Haley, he was like. I'm not saying anything, but we've been talking to a lot of exciting people whose names we're about to release soon. And but it's getting late. But I don't know. I'm, I'm I still have concern. They're on a, they're on the ballot in a lot of states. Certainly more than RFK is. We talk more about RFK, but he's not on the he's on the ballot in fucking Utah, and that's it. And he got smoked at the Libertarian convention over the weekend. Smoked. Very one funny. One person. <laughs> he got one vote. He had one one vote at the Libertarian convention in California. I don't think that's happening for him. Was nervous about that. Uh, but I do think the labels is still one of the worst smokings of a Kennedy in politics in some time. Oh my god! <laughs> I, what? No, no, what? cut that. Why? <laughs> what do you mean? Make an assassination joke? No, I'm talking about Joe Kennedy losing in Massachusetts. Oh, oh, oh. yeah, okay, okay, sure. What are you talking about? Uh, oh my God, what did you think I meant? Okay, okay, Hillary in June of uh, 2008. <laughs> Remember that? It was like a South Dakota newspaper ed board. Just you know what? Dropping. That was tough. That was tough. She did not mean that. That she was tough. Mean that, she didn't mean it. She didn't mean it. That was tough. Uh, look it up. I'm not going to explain it. According uh, to my, my emails to reporters that week, she meant it. <laughs> For being honest, I mean, Tommy, for being honest about Tommy what we're doing the, for a Tommy living on the grass, you know, taking Hillary out. <laughs> Jesus Christ. This is good I'm, stuff. I'm not associated with Le- this. Leave it all uh, in. Anyway, there's another problem that Haley... Try as you might, you are associated. There's, <laughs> this is true. Uh, there is a... Um, I fund it. There are sore loser laws, which is going to... That, that could... That Haley and Chris Christie... Although after talking, after listening to Chris Christie's interview with you, he keeps being mentioned as a no labels candidate. I, I, I so. feel like it's not going to happen I after listening him. to yeah. But in forty seven states, there are laws on the books that say if you are a candidate in a primary, that in the general you cannot, or at least it severely restricts your ability to run in a general, either as an independent, third party, or the other party. And so there is different. There are differing views, legal views, on whether that would apply to a presidential race but regardless it would be lit- it would have to be litigated yeah I, I will say like the argument that all of the justices just got behind that says the 14th amendment doesn't bar trump because states can't do that does seem like it's like all of a sudden the states are determining nikki haley can't be president even the constitution says she can interesting, yeah, interesting. but I, I feel like hopefully that's the least of our worries Bosch tools are built for workers. The Bosch 2-in-1 impact driver and impact wrench quickly changes between bits and sockets to help get jobs done without having to switch tools. Bosch tools, what hard workers deserve. Learn more at BoschTools.com. 
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How do you cope when there's something weighing on you or something you need to get off your chest? You know the best way to do it? Best way to cope is to talk about it. Not just cram it down, not do what generations of New Englanders have done, just stuff their feelings down, maybe cover it with a coat of booze. No, you got to talk to someone, you got to work it out, get it off your chest. And just by doing that, you will feel better. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash PSA. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash PSA. Escape to Ocean City, Maryland, and discover a place that just feels lighter, where every day feels like Saturday and French fries are a food group, where flip-flops are always in fashion and seafood is always in season where the boardwalk is bustling and the beach is right outside your door, where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com. So even though Haley's uh, sticking around for a few more weeks, Trump is uh, allegedly turning his focus to his general election rematch with Joe Biden. Here's an NBC News headline. Fewer grievances, more policy. Trump aides and allies push for a post-South Carolina pivot. That's a real throwback. I haven't seen something like that since uh, 2020. At least, uh, so this was his team's spin ahead of Trump's speech at the Conservative Political Action Conference, or CPAC. They told the New York Times that Trump would, quote, present a brighter vision for the country Mm. brought about by a second Trump term. So uh, here's how that brighter, grievance-free vision sounded over the weekend at CPAC. I stand before you today not only as your past and hopefully future president, but as a proud political dissident. I am a dissident. For hardworking Americans, November 5th will be our new Liberation Day. But for the liars and cheaters and fraudsters and censors and imposters who have commandeered our government, it will be their Judgment Day. And then I got indicted a second time and a third time and a fourth time. And a lot of people said that that's why the black people like me, because they have been hurt so badly and discriminated against. I'm being indicted for you, the black population. We'll have 18 million people, in my opinion, in a country that shouldn't be here. And they do come from prisons and mental institutions and they are terrorists. And we're going to be paying a price and it'll be the largest deportation in the history of our country. And- And it's true. In Beverly Hills, you pay a fortune in taxes. They say you can only brush your teeth once a day. Whatever happened to the cocaine they found in the White House? Where is it? Hey, by the way, isn't this better than reading off a frickin' teleprompter? What? Told you we'd have more cocaine content. Uh, So... Cheery. Just so optimistic. So grievance-free, so focused on policy. Uh, That was just the tip of the iceberg. Lots of crazy shit from Trump last weekend. I'm having a little 2016-2020 deja vu where it was hard to figure out, like, which Trump comments would actually, voters would actually care about uh, and which ones they just laugh at. Because now we're getting, 
you know, Trump's been out of the spotlight a little bit, but now we're getting this. He's back in the speeches and the rallies and we're getting crazy comments. He's every, hugging the flag again. He's hugging the flag yes. again. He's doing all the hits. He's he's saying things that everyone on Twitter's freaking out about. But like, what do you guys think in terms of like what is most damaging to him in a general election and what stuff that probably just doesn't matter as much, even though it's crazy? I will say real quick, just on the on the pivoting to substance <laughs> stories. <laughs> What's so funny about these stories, it's not just that there's so many recent examples of them spinning this and him not doing it. It's this suggestion that the grievances and the cruelty inherent in his rhetoric isn't what the Trump base loves about him and wants to hear. Mm. That, like Trump believes that every election is a base turnout contest. He might be right about that. And the base loves owning the libs and owning the rhinos and maybe owning the lighting guy who didn't do a good job at the event he's at and he fires them on stage. Like that's his whole brand and they love it. And like, we just, why would we pretend otherwise? You know, yeah, no, no, grievance is their top policy issue, at least to the people that show up at CPAC. Making people like us mad is their deal. Grievance and revenge. Yeah. Now, I don't think that's true of the general election, which is, I think, why the campaign wants him to just pivot away from that grievance and and focus on the policy. It, I, I see. I, I, still I, think I don't it. love to get as, in, into media criticism as much these days because I think it's sort of a waste of energy. But the New York Times going with that headline about the like just getting spun, completely spun by the Trump campaign, <laughs> laying out an optimistic, hopeful vision. To be fair, he did. He did say the words that they gave to the Times in a in a preview. They must have previewed excerpts from the speech. But when you watch the whole speech, he like rushed past them as fast as possible. It was an hour. Yes. It was an hour and thirty minutes. It was so, <laughs> so long. long time. Yeah. The one thing that jumped out to me is at some point in the speech, which is long, he says something like, "When I say revenge, I mean America's success will be my revenge." Yeah, you can tell the they're, rev- trying, they're, they're trying, trying to finesse it. So there's they are clearly worried yeah. that Trump's very correctly. That that Trump saying I will be your retribution, I will be your revenge. That there that this is a real problem for them. I feel like there's like a lot about like how kooky and crazy he was up there. But to me, like what I was going back to are the parts that actually come come back to extremely unpopular and dangerous and and scary policies for most people. At one point in his sort of long and rambling rant about the border, he says, "We have languages coming into our country. They have languages that nobody in this country has ever heard of. It's a horrible thing." That's wild. And then at the part where, again, like he wants to deploy the U.S. military into America's cities, he goes on this tangent, which is a lie, about how he deployed the National Guard to Minneapolis in 2020. And uh, I'm, I'm the one that did that. If I hadn't done that, the city would have burned to the ground. None of it's true. That National Guard, that is Tim Waltz, Tommy's friend. Uh, the guy. Uh, Balls uh, of the walls. At the request of other Democrats deployed National Guard. But- He's out there starting to tell this story about how I'm going to deploy the military. I've done it before. I'll do it again. Um, that to me is the sort of I would get, get away from, oh, wow, he called himself a genius. And, oh, the thing about the prompter and cognitive decline and get back to he is promising. It's not an optimistic vision. It is a dark and terrifying, chaotic, authoritarian vision for using power to hurt the people he doesn't like. Yeah, I, I I would just focus on the substance. Like uh, there was a big political story about the second term agenda, which includes the 16 week abortion ban because Trump likes round numbers, as we discussed in a previous mm, yeah, show. It looks, it's even mass deportations of migrants by the U.S. military, weaponization of DOJ, a 60 percent tariff on all Chinese imports. Like that would probably not help the economy. Just guessing. 60 percent on Chinese imports and 10 percent across, across the, the board, board for yeah. all, imports all imports from all countries. So not an economist. But I, I imagine that might hurt inflation. Yeah. You don't like high prices now? Uh, yeah. 
banning fetal tissue research so you can't find cures for diseases, dictating uh, local school curriculums from the federal government, uh, like you said, deploying troops against protesters, abandoning NATO, calling the January 6th folks who were locked up hostages. It's probably worth highlighting. But yeah, keeping on the substance of what he would do in term two, I I do think is are the parts of uh, the speeches and the agenda that will really turn off voters. There's a lot of I watched that hour and a half long thing. There's a lot of it that is just entertaining. He tells stories about landing in Iraq and jokes and cracks, you know, makes fun of people and the crowd loves it. And he's being sarcastic half the time and having a good time. And we can't fall into that trap. Yeah, I keep I've been thinking about this a lot because there's this. The truth is the agenda he has laid out is extremely scary and and very dangerous for the country. And I think he would have much more ability to carry it out in a second term than he did in the first because the guardrails are off. He just has the the kookiest kooks around him. Yep. Uh, and he's going to have even friendlier courts and he's going to ignore Congress. He's going to have a friendly Congress, right? So I, I, I really worry about that. But you also want, I think, what drives a lot of voters, a lot of uh, swing voters, voters who don't pay close attention to politics, what drives them nuts about Trump is that he just sounds like a, a crazy man, like he sounds like an idiot. But I've been thinking about uh, they need to like make an argument that he's like a useful idiot for a lot of these. Like there were Nazis at CPAC. OK, and there have always been <laughs> since since the Trump era began, there have always been Nazis at CPAC. And in past years, they've been kicked out. And uh, this time around, they met no resistance. It's they were chilled. there. They were self-identifying as Nazis. It wasn't like a big thing. And uh, you so mean like their pronouns? Their pro- Yeah, yeah. Their <laughs> one, pronouns were. One was wearing a black air, leather my jacket. Pronouns are air, air. <laughs> what, one was wearing a black leather jacket and looked like he was about to get beaten up in an Indiana Jones movie. Like they couldn't have been more Nazi looking. And it made me think too, like we have completely memory hold already his fucking dinner with Nick Fuentes. Yeah, uh, another uh, self-described Nazi. And where where Trump had dinner with him in Kanye West, and then Trump said uh, Trump said he liked him, and then he said, "Oh yeah, he gets me." And I I think we Trump is sur- going to surround himself and has surrounded himself now with like the bottom of the MAGA barrel, uh, Nazis, right wing Christian nationalists, racists, all kinds of kooks, and he's kind of an idiot. And if you flatter Trump, he'll do whatever you want. And if you say nice things about him, he'll do whatever you want. And so when Trump goes off and like you know, uh, releases this agenda and talks about this agenda and then says crazy shit. Like it's all of a piece where you put him in the White House and he is such a moron that all of the scary, dangerous things that people are that he's saying, whether he really cares about them or not, whether he's too lazy or not, he's going to have people around him who are going to do this. They're going to enact this agenda. I think the other piece of that idea, there's sort of the Nazi MAGA part. And then there's also just the really creepy religious conservatives. And I really want someone to start a pack, we could call it bro pack, that targets, that highlights some of these policies for young men who think Trump is this cool, like kind of counterculture guy that is, I know it's like, it's fun to be for him. They need to know about national abortion bans, banning contraception, banning porn. There was the guy a couple of days ago who was talking about um, uh, getting like recreational sex being a problem and yeah. doing away with recreational sex. I suspect that Chris a lot Rufo. of- yes, Christopher the, Rufo. Christopher uh, the, Rufo, the, the, the guy who- you know, started the whole critical race theory panic, panic and then, yeah. you know, all the at school stuff. Now he's into no recreational sex. Yes. So I, I imagine <laughs> a lot of the kind of Joe Rogan fan, Barstool sports fan, Trump fans probably don't know about any of this stuff. And they might not believe that Donald Trump himself believe any of this or, or would enact these policies if he were on his own. But they need to know that 
like the if Trump is elected, the people who come along with him are the Chris Rufos, the Mike Pence's, the Speaker Johnson's. That's who will be empowered in enacting these policies. And guess what? In 2020 or in the first term, like all those people got what they wanted or the the, the hardcore right wing Christian nationalists. Mm-hmm. They got their they got their Supreme Court justices. They got their other judges. They got their abortion. Ban. They're, they're all talking about IVF now. Trump, you know, uh, nominated uh, and, and got confirmed a judge to a lifetime appointment on the federal bench who was, you know, anti IVF and had her on a short list for the Supreme Court. Like this is this is what he does. He just, whatever they want, he's there to, he, he, if they flatter him, he's going to do whatever they want. I talked about this a little bit with Melissa later, but there is a, a story out that basically these uh, um, uh, Christian conservatives, they, they, they don't want Trump to talk too much yep. about the authority they believe he has if he's president mm-hmm. because he can use something called the Comstock Act to, he doesn't need a law. He can basically, with a, with a, with a stroke of a pen, do an executive order that bans the most common ways in which people access abortion. In this country, that with the stroke of a pen, we could we could keep the Senate, we could win the House, and Trump could still have the ability to do that. And if you think that he won't, uh, then you should look at what happened with Roe. You should look at what happened when this administration and when the courts are stocked with these Christian conservatives who uh, uh, do not care about the political repercussions, do not care what anybody thinks, do not care what people in California and New York and other progressive places think. They will they will they will rule over us. And it's important to know that the Republicans are really worried about the round of stories about attempts to ban IVF, and they're all scrambling and trying to back away from it. But many of them, 125 Republicans in the House, sponsor a bill that would uh, would ban IVF. It's called the Life at Conception Act. Mike Johnson is a co-sponsor. So it's important to tie them to these things. Well, and that's in the House. In the Senate, Tammy Duckworth introduced a bill that would protect IVF access, and Senate Republicans blocked the bill from consideration. They also, they all voted down the uh, a bill that would have protected contraception, the right to contraception after Dobbs too. So it's, it's complete bullshit what they're doing now. I do think there is one reason to amplify just sort of the craziest funny Trump comments that maybe won't affect people as much. And I remember, I think you and Mehdi talked about this last week, that there's a Biden strategy now of um, like significantly ramping up the efforts to highlight the crazy shit that Trump says. Apparently dictated by Joe Biden himself to his staff. Yeah. And and partly that's to like scare people like this is what's coming, but also to get under Trump's skin. Yeah. And to like it, because if he consumes all this stuff and you could tell in the CPAC speech, he's starting to do the like, oh, and then and then I mix up a name and they say that I'm they say that I'm cognitively, you know, I'm, no, in, no. I'm in decline and I'm not in decline. You know, he's, he's like, they say that I think Obama's president. What I'm actually saying is that Obama's behind the, uh, the scenes actually pulling the strings because yeah. we know Joe isn't in charge. Like, what are you talking so about? So I, I do think it's worth like continuing to needle Trump and mock him. I, there, there needs to be more mockery of yes. Trump from from like the campaigns and the and and elected Democrats themselves, because if you just do the scary Trump and he is scary, like you're sort of feeding into the strongman thing. So I do I do think there needs to be a little bit more mockery. Yeah, no, I I agree with that. I'm just trying to figure out that there's the tension between these. Yeah, there is a tension. I I think part of I think crazy is like this sort of too kind of broad a category of what we're talking about. And I think I think that when he is silly and zany, that isn't as bad as when I think when he's when he is legitimately confusing things. I think that we should be highlighting that all the time. When he thinks Nancy Pelosi is Nikki Haley, when he thinks Obama is Biden, when he thinks World War II is World War III, whatever, I think we should be getting that out there. I think when he's just sort of being kind of bombastic 
and almost fun in a way that like I, yeah, I like the Beverly Hills shower thing or like, the Beverly Hills um was it the sh- yeah, yeah yeah you can only shower can't brush once. your teeth once oh you brush your teeth sorry. like I think that stuff <laughs> that stuff like hey by where, the way pe- people already have, they brush their teeth all the time I don't know man. it's not a <laughs> fluoride stuff it's a Beverly Beverly Hills <laughs> there's a lot of MAGA people in Beverly Hills just yeah that's where there's one of the few places that's where he, that's yeah, where he you had see them one, up, you there's see one them little red circle yeah it's anyway um but anyway I just like I think that there's a certain kind of like kofefi drump world <laughs> I where I, really I don't that. care about yeah. that Putin's stuff. I don't, Putin's pu- like I just I, know, I don't care no, about I that know, stuff. I, I don't. The two speeches that are are good examples of like the the different Trumps. The 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 Trump that the advisors want is the Trump after Iowa. That's uh, that's what. And yes. he's like you know he's seeming gracious and he's not saying anything nasty about his opponents and he's like and he said remember he was like. Wouldn't it be nice if we could all come together, not just Republicans as a party, but Democrats and liberals? And, I mean, it's all bullshit, but that, that's what his advisors want. What they don't want is angry Trump like he was after New Hampshire. And I think if you can get under his skin and make him like sort of lash out, that's not I think that's, that's, that's damaging. I think that's the distinction. And, and the point, by, by the way, when you say like, have there been examples where Trump has shown the discipline they want? It's that speech. Yep. And the good news is his like like all of us, he has only has a certain amount of discipline in his in his little discipline meter every day. And it his goes down fast. But <laughs> I, I never think, had much to begin with. I actually start on, with a... honestly, I think it's a mirror of what we were talking about with Biden, where yeah. when Trump is angrily defending himself when he seen that's to me is actually where you have the sweet spot of both where he's the angry yes it captures some of the danger but it also makes him seem kind of kooky and un, and not up to the job like that to me like angry angry like, crazy is kook, good kooky old narcissist is a is a is, is very damaging to trump yeah, i think, I think it's right. from a character perspective i think the policy there's a lot of policies that are damaging that we should amplify but when he there's a reason why they changed the speech so that it's not like i'm out for i'm proudly out for revenge and blah 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 retribution now they're it's almost like they're they know that like Stephen Miller has been writing these speeches with Donald Trump, and you can imagine that some other advisors are like, "Okay, easy on the easy on the." Uh... Yeah, there's a, there was a line in the speech at CPAC where he says, "Like, I believe in an America that'll be richer, stronger, safer, more prosperous," and it honestly could be fucking lifted out of a Hillary Clinton speech from like 2009, <laughs> and like that's the part where I think that's what they want him to be kind of living in. The South Carolina, do you guys watch South Carolina speech? It was like 22 minutes. It was, it started super dark. Like migrants are coming yeah. from mental institutions and they're terrorists and the border is the worst. And then he just did 15 minutes of acknowledgements. The, he's really, the acknowledgements, so, acknowledgements so far this campaign have been really, in CPAC, it was like a full 10 minutes at the beginning. <laughs> including calling Lindsey Graham a lefty. Uh, and then Graham got booed. It was very awkward. He's calling, at the beginning of CPAC, he's calling out, he, like, oh, Seb Gorka, I almost forgot you. I almost forgot you at the end. Good thing you're tall. I said, why are you calling out Seb Gorka? He was calling out these right wing, like, leaders like Javier Mille and the president of the Vox Party in Spain and Remember Bolsonaro. S- and Seb Gorka from the very beginning of the administration when it turned out he had been me- a member of a Hungarian right wing. Patenzi Ren. Yeah. So that was from that was the days of oopsie doopsie. I joined a Nazi group. Oh, I forgot about that. Wow. Um, <laughs> all right. So there's always a straw poll at CPAC uh, where you know Trump beat Haley by uh, Saddam Hussein margins, ninety four to five. <laughs> so uh, all the excitement was over the VP straw poll. They did a VP straw poll for Trump, even though you know he hasn't actually locked up the nomination. Uh, and the two top finishers were South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem and Vivek Ramaswamy. Uh, they both got 15%. Pretty good. Uh, straw polls are generally meaningless, though Trump was apparently paying close attention to this one. He likes to know what the CPAC folks he are thinking. He loves the CPAC people. You guys have any initial thoughts on the Trump veep stakes? We have, we've been real responsible. We've stayed away from it so far. But now I think we're, we, we, can, we can dip our toes in the water a little bit. Look at us. I, I feel like the idea that Trump wants to spend more than the 
absolute fucking bare minimum amount of time he has to spend with Vivek Ramaswamy uh, makes it hard to imagine Vic, Vivek getting the nod. It's like, okay, I think he likes having him up there, but I don't, I don't think he wants to spend all every Saturday with him. Yeah, I, I, I do think this is where Trump gets the media game and how to play it better than anyone. Like normal campaigns take the VP process so seriously. There's all this vetting and clandestine meetings and you keep it secret. And like Trump's going to float shit from now until the day he chooses and he's going to use it to turn it into a game show. He might do like an apprentice. He'll get a game show out of it. He'll get these candidates to dance for him. He'll Sorry, elevate their profiles. He's in doing ways. that. It's yeah. begun. Yeah, but it, and it's, it's, it's good for everyone, right? Like if you are sending Vivek Ramaswamy to campaign for you in Michigan, it's better that he is potential vice presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy than failed presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy, Absolutely. right? So like it's this symbiotic thing and I don't know, it's just... I, I stupid my my like uh, who fucking knows at this point but um I have this belief that Donald Trump simply cannot get past the fact that Tim Scott is single and that his engagement seems weird to him and that's my hope because Tim Scott is pushing himself so hard out there he's so saying hard. the Bible tells me why I'd be a better VP than a than a president is basically what he said I last mean, it's week so, it's, it's so, so embarrassing sad. it's so embarrassing and sad if I'm a strategist on Trump's campaign I am I would wager that they are pushing Scott hard. Uh, that's, but and so Kellyanne Conway wrote a long New York Times piece about this, and she floated Scott, or she said, like, Scott or Marco Rubio. She thinks it should be a uh, black or Latino candidate uh, that he picks. And I could see them pushing uh, a Tim Scott hard because you get... He's, you know, he, he, he sends a signal to the weirdo uh, evangelical freaks, uh, but he also, they would hope that selecting Scott would chip away at Biden's lead with black men, which Trump was able to do in 2020 a little bit. So you, you, I could see Scott. Now, if it's Trump, what does Trump feel most comfortable with? It's, I could see more Chris. I could see a Christy Nome. I think yes, there. that's look, I have the same I, look that for the same reason that makes me nervous about Tim Scott. That's why I'm like sort of hanging my my hat on this idea that like there's just something that makes Trump uncomfortable. He gets engaged right before going to the endorsement. It's all very dark. But also, like, don't you think back in, in 2016 that uh, Trump also thought Mike Pence was a fucking square? Well, he, got talk- <laughs> he got talked into it, that's and then he tried was... to fucking kill him. Yeah, yeah well, so fool that, me once. Well, that's the only thing that he... But that's the only thing he didn't deliver on. Pence helped him. <laughs> <laughs> like, Pence was great up until then, when he stopped having the courage. The, the funny thing about Trump is, like, he can't... He, what he... He says what he thinks, right? And he keeps being like, I don't know, Tim Scott, this guy absolutely sucked at selling himself <laughs> and talking about himself. He's so terrible on TV. Now he's great when he's talking about me. He's great. It's like, you wonder if there's a little bit in there that's like, I don't know, that he would be great for selling a ticket he was a part of. I don't, I'm overthinking it, but it's very funny the way he the, just humiliates Tim Scott every time he calls him up on stage. That moment where Tim Scott- needs to do that with whoever's going to be the- Well, they have to get, they have to, be, they have to be broken. They have yeah, to be trained. Exactly. That's right. Yeah. Uh, but like that moment where Tim Scott walks up to the podium after Trump says, I bet this guy fucking hates Nikki Haley. And <laughs> 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 Tim Scott walks up next to him and Trump goes, uh-oh. <laughs> He's like, oh no, I love you. I That's love what it's you. about. And then there's that clip where he's like, on this Valentine's Day, oh my let's God. tell, let's show our love. And he always puts the fucking J in, the yeah. Donald J. Trump. I, I just Donald Trump's fucking weirdo Christian meters going off. He's from New York <laughs> City. Can't take it out of him. I, I, but look, he went with Mike Pence. That's what I'm He'll saying. Do, That's what, yeah. You know, know. above all, he wants to win. I, I don't know. All right, enough of this. Uh, before before we uh, go to break. As you probably know by now, the three of us wrote a book. 
called oh. Democracy or Else, How to Save America in 10 Easy Steps. We're only four months away from you all having a copy of the book in your hand. But maybe the lure of a reasonable page count loaded with illustrations isn't your thing. Well, we've got you covered. That's right. We're about to hunker down for, uh, let's be honest, it's going to be a tedious eight hours uh, that we'll never get back <laughs> to, uh, to bring you Democracy or Else as an audiobook. That's right. We're going to record the audiobook. Uh, it's perfect for the avid listener who loves this pod but wishes it could just be four hours longer. Uh, head to crooked.com slash books and pre-order now. You can get hard copy. You can get your audiobook. How are we each reading for eight hours and the book is only four hours longer than this pod? I don't know. Maybe we can cut it down. Okay. Anyway, that's that seems like for that's a that's an off mic thing that we can figure okay. out. Okay. <laughs> when we come back, Love It talks to <laughs> Melissa Murray and Andrew Weissman about their new book. The Trump indictments. I don't know the difference between off mic and on mic anymore. Me neither. Escape to Ocean City, Maryland, and discover a place that just feels lighter, where every day feels like Saturday and French fries are a food group, where flip flops are always in fashion and seafood is always in season, where the boardwalk is bustling and the beach is right outside your door where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com. Skip the waiting room. TireRack.com now offers convenient mobile tire installation in select areas. Simply shop TireRack.com for your next set of tires, and at checkout, choose Tire Rack Mobile Tire Installation. An expertly trained technician will arrive with your tires and install them on site, at home, at the office, wherever you are. You'll spend less time waiting and more time doing the things you enjoy. TireRack.com, the way tire buying should be. Vacations are always good. Sometimes they're even great. And Celebrity Cruises is about to ruin all of that. Because once you explore with us, you'll never want a vacation any other way. And with new Quick Caribbean Escapes, you'll never want a weekend any other way either. Celebrity Cruises. Nothing comes close. Visit Celebrity.com, call 1-800-CELEBRITY, or contact your travel advisor. Ships Registry, Malta and Ecuador. Lots of legal shenanigans to cover, so let's dive in. Joining us now, NYU law professor and co-host of Strict Scrutiny, it's Melissa Murray, and former federal prosecutor and host of the podcast Prosecuting Donald Trump, Andrew Weissman. Welcome both of you to the pod. Thanks for having us. Nice to be here. We have a lot of news to cover, but everything unfolding right now begins in the court uh, with these charging documents. You have a new book, The Trump Indictments, The Historic Charging Documents with Commentary, Melissa, I'll start with you. What stood out to you as you sank deeper into these into these rich texts? That's a great question, John. What stood out as we just got deeper and deeper into all of this alleged criming? Um, one thing that stood out was that this is a really vast tableau that taken together shows Donald Trump allegedly committing crimes before during and after his presidency. And I don't think the enormity of the scale of the alleged criminality had really hit us in that way. We sort of like, wow, before he was president, during his presidency, and then 
retaining the documents unlawfully, allegedly. Andrew, one thing that struck me, I, I, reading them as, um, as Melissa knows, uh, a lay person with a great LSAT score, is that <laughs> what always jumped out to me was the indignation of anyone who has spent time deep in the facts around Donald Trump. That, that, that prosecutors who might normally be quite reserved, you feel in especially the documents case and in the insurrection case, a sense of moral indignation from these people who made the law their life, that the chief executive meant to enforce the law was so brazenly uninterested in following the law. So let's just take the Florida case, the, that case which has to do with retaining highly classified documents. And I, I note that Melissa correctly says alleged, but this is one where, you know, let's get real. Um, you know, they were found there. Um, so this is not a complicated case. But in terms of um, that sense of outrage or indignation for anyone who has seen highly classified documents, the idea that somebody would put those in a location intentionally that is not secure, um, given how important they are to all of our national security, is the kind of thing that is really hard to fathom. Um, it's, it's the kind of thing that when you see those documents, you wish when I have, I, I, was, I wish I hadn't seen them. I was so concerned about whether I would inadvertently reveal any information in there. Um, I think with the January 6th indictment, it's easier for, I think, the public to understand um, just how significant that is because it so much goes to something that until Donald Trump was a commonplace, which was, of course, there's a peaceful transfer of power. That is what separates us from an autocracy. So in New York, a date has been set for Trump's trial over his efforts to falsify business records and hide payments to Stormy Daniels. Now, the Jack Smith delay is now kind of an Alvin Bragg's gain. It's slated to begin on March 25th. You, know, you pointed to the insurrection case as one that really strikes at the core of democracy. A lot of people have said that this case in New York is the weakest or the least perilous for Trump. But at the same time, Michael Cohen was already found guilty at the federal level for being part of this scheme. Andrew, what's the realistic range of outcomes? So if he is convicted, um, there certainly is the potential for him to go to jail. It is also worth remembering that he cannot be federally pardoned for this. It is a state crime. Uh, the judge will consider a whole variety of factors, including what other people have been sentenced to. It is worth pointing out that the judge here has already said, with respect to those kinds of attacks, that this is not an important case, that it's not serious charges. He has issued a decision on the pretrial motion saying that he thinks these crimes are very serious, that they are a form of election interference, that it was repeated alleged felonies, and it was with the complicity of a major, uh, I won't say news institution, but certainly a press institution, um, the National Enquirer, that was complicit with not, you know, not giving information to the public, but actually keeping information from the public. So in many, way, in many ways, this is the sort of precursor to other crimes that we saw uh, charged in the federal case, in the Georgia case. Um, so I do think it's important, and I think it's one where he could very well be sentenced to jail. 
I, we often talk about this case as sort of the amuse-bouche of election <laughs> interference, right? So sure. it escalates certainly on January 6th, but the roots of it, I think, can be seen even earlier in that Manhattan case. Yeah, like in a, in a video game, there's the first part of the game where you learn the different commands. Yes. You know, you learn how to jump and hit. This feels like that's where Trump was sort of getting his routine down. Uh, also in New York... Trump has appealed the ruling of Judge Arthur Engeron that found that he owes roughly $450 million as punishment for his fraudulent business dealings. Andrew, as you said on your podcast this week, if you add that to the nearly $90 million he owes in Eugene Carroll, that's real money. What are the odds Trump will have to produce this money or will he be able to wriggle out of it? It's extremely good that he's going to have to produce the money. He can take an appeal, but just to be clear, within 30 days, if he has not posted a bond or put up the full amount of money, uh, both parties, both uh, the state in the Ngoran case or um, E. Jean Carroll in the federal case, get to start enforcing the um, judgment. And both judges have said no to Donald Trump seeking a stay. We had Robbie Kaplan on our podcast, Strict Scrutiny, and she was very emphatic. She is getting her money. Like, he has to put up a bond, and she is going, like, well, E. Jean Carroll is getting her money. And we've already heard Letitia James say the same thing. Like, you know, if there isn't enough liquidity to actually provide for the full judgment, there are a whole bunch of buildings that could easily satisfy that judgment. And, you know, James Tower has as good a ring as anything else. Well, <laughs> about to say, what would you like to see in uh, James Tower uh, if we manage to take it? So I've seen, I've heard pitches for a public library. Uh, perhaps uh, Planned Parenthood could get some office space. I mean, there's a lot of great options for what we can do with this new public facility on on Fifth Avenue. I think you know? the National Archives would like a word too. Okay, yeah, that's great. That's great. That's great. Donate, um, donate it to Ukraine. <laughs> sure, I guess. I would. Sort of technically complicated. All right, <laughs> let's talk about the 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 the, the uh, back to the federal indictments. Trump appealed the D.C. court's ruling that said he's not a god king, immune from prosecution now and forever. Jack Smith quickly replies to the Supreme Court well before his deadline, saying that the court should deny this appeal. We're still waiting. Joyce Vance, former U.S. attorney, she speculated that the delay suggests there is a a, a mouthy dissent in the works. That was that was her speculation, because if the court were planning to hear the case, nobody that would want to dissent would want to delay it. I thought that was a lovely bit of speculation. Uh, there's also been uh, a debate of whether or not there will be some sort of grand bargain where the court rules in favor of Trump on that 14th Amendment case uh, that's seeking to bar him from the ballot, but against him on immunity. Uh, Melissa, would you like to do any informed or reckless speculating? <laughs> um, all of the above. Um, so I think it's almost a foregone conclusion based on oral arguments and our own predictions in advance of oral argument that the 14th Amendment disqualification case is going to be a loser for Colorado. So I think Donald Trump is going to win there. Just as a practical matter, I don't think this court has any appetite on either the liberal or conservative wings to have a patchwork of ballots across the country. So we said that before or oral argument. It was borne out by oral argument where, you know, everyone just sort of coalesced around this idea that states 
do not have the authority, although they have the authority to decide their own election laws for themselves, they don't have the authority to sort of make a cascading decision that then has repercussions for other states and for the country as a whole. So I think that's where that's going. And I think given that, there is a great deal of pressure on the court to find a loss for Donald Trump. So it sort of looks like it's evened out. But I want to just emphasize that Joyce is likely right. Maybe there is a very mouthy dissent in the works. Or I'm sorry it, to introduce that term, by the way. <laughs> or not. Um, picturing a picturing Alita, for the record. That's who I was picturing, too. And I, it, when that mouthy dissent comes out, I hope you'll come back to strict scrutiny and read it aloud in a dramatic reading Happily. like you did before for Dobbs. But I do think that if there is a dissent in the works, um, you know, that will surely take a lot of time. But irrespective of why the delay is happening, the very fact of the delay is just posting another de facto victory for Donald Trump, right? And I think that cannot go unstated. Like this court is going to present itself as a hero when it sort of splits this baby, one judgment against, one judgment for. But the fact of the matter is the longer you take with this, the more he has won. Andrew, the, Trump's goal here more broadly, as Melissa is pointing out, in is delay, delay, delay. That's what the Supreme Court is seemingly helping him do. There's a story in CNN this morning that basically said Trump's strategy is going to be to use the Florida documents trial as a plow to kind of push the D.C. insurrection trial past the election. The scheme is Judge Eileen Cannon, who is, to put it mildly, a sympathetic ear to Trump, would schedule the case uh, for summer as opposed to May. That would force the D.C. trial later. Then Eileen Cannon discovers how complicated all of this is, has to delay the trial even further, and there's a cascade of delays that pushes the insurrection trial past the election. Now, it seems like there's a better way to pursue this strategy than telling the press about it, especially when judges have access to the internet and Jack Smith is the lawyer on both of the cases. But uh, uh, what was your reaction to this and what are the tools in Jack Smith's toolbox to prevent this strategy from potentially working. So assuming that the judge, Judge Shutkin, gets the green light from the Supreme Court so she can go mm-hmm. forward, uh, I think that she is not going to give, um, to put it bluntly, a rat's ass about a Florida <laughs> date. No one is taking that date seriously. I think that the judge has kept the May date as a blocker, and but nobody in fact, is treating it that way. I think she was doing it precisely to sort of screw up everyone's schedules. I have a very cynical view of her take given her her conduct. Um, but I don't think if she tried that, that it would work. And one of the things that Judge Chutkin can do is just schedule her trial um, without looking at what that date is. It is also important to know that the same kind of immunity motion that um, the Supreme Court is hearing a sort of separate one is now wending its way because Donald Trump had the temerity to argue that even after he was president, he still is immune. Um, so he has made that motion and a whole series of motions before uh, Judge Cannon in Florida. So there's a lot of reasons for Judge Cannon to just sit on this and delay the case. I don't think that she's going to, even if she tries to use her new date as a blocker, that it's going to work with, with Judge Chutkin. And also remember, Judge Chutkin has the argument that, you know, she had set her date. Um, so she had sort of the first claim to it. So I think that will, um, assuming the Supreme Court uh, does what we think it's going to do, um, I think that there is going to be that federal D.C. trial right after the Manhattan trial. 
all of it has this sort of odd Shakespearean quality, like, you know, two houses, both alike in dignity, but not really quite because one is orange and, you know, wears a tie down to his navel. Um, it's just all weird and bad and honestly just unprecedented in every way. It's it's one of the reasons why we decided to write this book. Like this is an unprecedented situation where you have four criminal trials proceeding in tandem against the same person. And that person used to be the leader of the free world. So the the one we haven't mentioned yet is in Fulton County, Georgia, where Trump and 18 of his closest goons are facing trial for trying to overturn the presidential election. Trump's lawyers have accused the district attorney, Fonnie Willis, of having a conflict of interest because of her relationship with another attorney on the on the prosecuting team. I feel a bit baffled by this because I don't understand the conflict. Like, and I'll just just to not to put too fine a point on it. If she were sleeping with a juror or the judge or someone on the defense team, that would be a conflict of interest to me. It may not be optically awesome. Or there may be ethical problems with a prosecutor sleeping with another prosecutor while pursuing a case, but it's not a conflict of interest. Even if even if they went on fun vacations to all kinds of even even if they did have a nice time in Belize, like I don't I, what what is what is this? I mean, most of the time when you're concerned about prosecutors' ethics with regard to undue interference or influence with another party. It's genuinely on the other side, like a defendant, a judge, a juror, a defense lawyer, not someone on their own team. And, you know, again, you're right. The optics of this look poor and the press coverage of it has been poor for Fonnie Willis, certainly. But I'm not certain that this is the conflict they're looking for. Um, you know, the idea behind the conflict as it's been ginned up is that he is a public servant appointed by her and paid by the prosecutor's office out of public monies. And he is using those public funds that he is receiving um, to do a job that apparently he is ill-qualified for, according to his detractors, and using that money then to take her on vacation. So she's benefiting and being enriched by this appointment that she made to her paramour. But so here's what, okay, let's say I say that's all true. So just so I understand, her plan was first become district attorney of Georgia. Step two, build an indictment, a multifaceted, vast indictment using the RICO statute to go after Trump and his associates so that she could hire her her uh, love interest so that she could pay him from the coffers of Georgia so that she could go to Belize. That's yeah, that's that's the argument. Terry, what's bothering you with that? (laughs) <laughs> but like, I mean, I, I don't, but even like, I even seen taking that. I'm just, just like, I was like, I watched the whole thing. Cause it was fucking awesome. And the, like, she was awesome on the stand. But then I was like, well, did you pay cash or did you not pay cash? Even if he paid for the trip, I don't understand. Don't you have to prove that she's pursuing the case because she wanted the trip? Am I missing Andrew? Am I missing something? So can you just also put this in the context of what has been reported with respect to the Supreme Court and Justice Thomas and Justice Alito and the amount of money <laughs> that we're talking about here are what's worse, a love interest or a Winnebago that you love? I don't know. I mean, and those are people who are paying you know vast amounts of money and have cases and causes in front of the court. 
Uh, and so the idea that this, which is just the most paltry amount of money, and also there's money's fungible. So the idea that this is not a guy who is destitute, who desperately <laughs> needed this, and his only source of money was this, you know, a contract, which is in our terms, and of course, you know, because you took the LSATs, is low bono. <laughs> this, is, this is as close to pro bono work as you can get. So it is a preposterous legal and factual argument. And Andrew, I don't want to blow your mind, but wait till you found out who Clarence Thomas was sleeping with. <laughs> because that person's also affected by some of these cases that Thomas is hearing. I don't know if you know that. Yeah, I heard that too. <laughs> I like, honestly, the prospect of if you knew who Thomas, Clarence Thomas was sleeping with just so boggled my mind and the picture. Yeah, it, really, it, it just really, it really sucked the, it sucked wow, the, it sucked the, the, the intelligence out of right mind. out of your like, face. <laughs> Your brain just, <laughs> just. I feel like I feel like your LSAT score went down. That was that was a wild trial, but again, I think everyone in that nineteen defendant indictment is thinking about the art of delay. Like, forget the art of the deal; it's really the art of delay. And Michael Roman, who is the person who raised these allegations against Fonnie Willis, um, you know, he's one of these defendants. Um, there has already been a very extended effort to try and use standard administrative processes to get Fonnie Willis disqualified or to otherwise limit her authority as prosecutor. That didn't work. And so now they sort of switched to this ethical quandary. Michael Roman, who is the ops guy for Trump long ago, um, is the one who's raised it. And the whole point of this is to inject some chum in the water so that perhaps this is a situation where a judge will rule that she is disqualified. If that is the case, then it has to go to the special body to identify a new prosecutor. There's probably not a prosecutor in the state of Georgia with the kind of experience doing RICO trials that Fonnie Willis has that will make it harder for this prosecution to continue in the direction that it's been going. And if that doesn't happen and all that happens is that Fonnie Willis gets bruised and hobbled a bit, it's going to make it harder, I think, or at least damage her a little bit in her credibility with a jury in the event this does go to trial. So it's kind of a win-win from all sides for the Trump team. Andrew, have you ever had a weekend trip so good you got a tattoo? <laughs> no. I just thought that was a cool part of the, I mean, that's neither here nor there, but I mean, I hope she's happy. That's also part of it. Um, before, <laughs> I'm just, <laughs> I, I'm just rooting for her. You know, it's, you know? it's just unbelievable <laughs> that this is the, um, with no offense, but this is like the level of discussion. We have the former leader of the free world and that, and this is also an example of the judge who appears to be quite serious, but is really a neophyte on the bench should have shut this down. Um, this is one where, you know, maybe there's an ethics issue. He could be like, this is for a different forum. This is not for, for this case. Um, and so you're seeing um, both in Florida and in Georgia, the leaving aside, you know, any partisanship, you're just seeing real inexperience on the bench. And you can compare that to, let's say, Judge Kaplan, who oversaw the judge, uh, uh, the uh, Eugene Carroll case, was, you know, just a master uh, in the way that he handled Trump, he handled the jury. He was, you know, that that is what you really see as sort of the showing the rule of law in its absolute best light. 
So this is not to exonerate either Scott McAfee or Eileen Cannon. Um, I, I will say, though, the fact that Eileen Cannon is in the position that she's in and is you know, doing this incredibly complicated criminal trial with very little criminal experience is a result of politics. I mean, like Florida has the, the Southern District of Florida, where she sits, has three open district court seats, and the Biden administration has been unable to fill them because of the blue slip requirement in the Senate and the fact that Florida has two Republican senators. So when this case went in the wheel to be divvied up among the judges in the Southern District of Florida, it was basically a one in three chance they would get Eileen Cannon because there are three vacancies that cannot be filled because of Marco Rubio and Rick Scott. Before we let you go, uh, there was two sort of non-indictment related legal stories I just wanted to touch on. One is the Supreme Court heard arguments in a case over whether states can uh, bar platforms like Facebook and Twitter from performing content moderation. It seems like most of the judges were skeptical that this isn't a violation of the First Amendment, but Gorsuch, Alito, and Thomas were open to the idea that this was censorship and that posters must be free to post. Uh, Melissa, any reaction to the oral argument? So I will just, all full disclosure, I haven't listened to it yet because I've been in class all day and in office hours, but that is my evening tonight. I'm going to sit back with some vino and listen to the dulcet sounds of Justice Alito harping on these lawyers. But the description that you gave is the one that I've read in write-ups of the oral argument. And yeah, I, I'm not surprised by that. And if you've listened to their responses in other cases, not just cases involving the internet and content moderation, but just sort of like cases involving religious freedom. Like this is a wing of the court, Gorsuch, Alito, and Thomas, that literally seems like it's getting an intravenous diet of Fox News constantly. And so this idea of cancel culture, a war on conservatives, a war on conservative thoughts, the censorship of conservatism as a disfavored ideology is one that they are always talking about across a wide er, a wide variety of doctrines and disciplines. So I'm not surprised that that came up today. And I'm actually just eager to hear how vociferous and vehement they were about it. You know, this is, it's coming up again in a, in a couple of weeks in a case involving the Biden administration and sort of what their role can be in terms of um, the art of persuasion of social media. Uh, and that, you know, there's a real issue there in terms of how far can you go? Uh, you know, can you, you uh, there they obviously were doing things like they were trying to prevent the spread of COVID. I mean, these are good things. These are science-based. Uh, and this bubbled up through the Fifth Circuit uh, that, you know, asked a lot of questions about, well, you say that's science-based. Um, so, you know, a very anti-fact, anti-science. Um, <laughs> well, Andrew, you have to explain what the the complaint was. So the idea here is that the Biden administration went on social media and said, do not take ivermectin to prevent COVID. Like that's not going to work. And right. and, and they wanted to have the sites not um, promulgate things that yes. were going to actually kill American citizens. Um, yeah. And so that, that was one of the many things that they were doing that's really outrageous. Um, and so this, again, is a sort of far right attack. It was interesting today, just one quick note, is there was a split appeared um, between Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Alito, where Justice Alito was talking about how this is so Orwellian, talking about sort of trying to paint um, Wait, President Biden. How did you listen to it? You had class the same time I did. Some of us multitask. You know, it's like class. You were listening to the oral argument, argument in class? <laughs> so, um, you know, 
<laughs> some of us, you know, really can do so many different things. Um, but anyway, so, um, wow. so anyway, Justice uh, Kavanaugh responded to that saying, it's not Orwellian, this is a private actor. This is not the state doing it. And so it is completely different and it's not Orwellian. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, how that sort of, the sort of right part of the, you know, the, the right conservative meaning part of the court you know, where they sort of split off. And then one last question for you, Melissa. Um, hey, is that a child in your freezer? Or are you just happy to create a Christian theocracy? <laughs> um, the Sorry. So the Alabama Supreme Court issued a ruling, says embryos are kids, just too small for big wheels. That's the only issue. Uh, basically shuts down IVF in Alabama. I want to just get your reaction to the ruling, but one thing I, I wanted to, to step back and ask you about, basically, there's there's been this cycle, and the cycle is legal scholars like you say they're going to overturn Roe. Conservatives try, try to say they won't. Others say it's hysterical. They overturn Roe. Say, oh, this is going to lead to IVF rulings. This is going to lead to uh, women being in parking lots, unable to get health care, even if they don't want an abortion. They say that's hysterical. Then it happens. I'm curious where you see this going next. And if you can talk about the next step that people are going to say isn't going to happen, whether it's a federal ban uh, uh, at the executive level or, or what have you. So thank you for acknowledging the fact that I have said all of this and I've been right, even though all of these men have said that we were hyperbolic, that this was hysterical. Like, I was right about all of these things. And I called them all a long time ago. And this is not like a fight with my husband. I take no pleasure from being right here, but I was. And <laughs> as far as I, you can keep that in. As far as I can tell, the only place this can logically go is some recognition, whether constitutionally or statutorily, of the fetus as a person. And I said that after Dobbs, like this idea that Dobbs simply returned this to the states for deliberation by the people, that didn't make any sense. If you believe abortion is murder, you can't be okay with California allowing it. Like, so there was never going to be a tenable settlement by leaving this at the state. So the end game, and they've been very upfront about it, is fetal personhood. Um, they've been very fetal personhood forward. The Dobbs opinion has all kinds of fetal personhood Easter eggs. And so I think we are going to be moving to a moment where the question is going to be called, is the fetus a person for purposes of constitutional law or for purposes of statutory law and both? And this is going to play out, I think, in the next election cycle. Um, There's reporting in the New York Times last week where Jonathan Mitchell, who is the architect of Texas SB8, and also the person who argued on behalf of Donald Trump in the disqualification oral argument before the Supreme Court, um, he essentially said that he really hopes Donald Trump does not know about the Comstock Act. The Comstock Act is an 1873 law that prohibited the transmission and in interstate commerce of any, quote unquote, articles that could be used for immoral purposes, including information or materials that could be used to advise individuals about how to have an abortion or actual abortifacients. And the law has basically been in destitute for, oh, like, since the 1950s. Like, no one's really been 
you know, prosecuting anyone under the Comstock Act, but it's still on the books. And so Jonathan Mitchell's point was, everyone's talking about this national ban. Are we going to have a national ban? And Donald Trump is like, I would never support a national ban. He doesn't have to because Comstock is waiting in the wings. And even if they don't actually get to the point where they're going to enact a national ban on abortion, they can still resurrect this zombie law, the Comstock Act, and use it as a cudgel that limits the ability across the country of sending the materials for medication abortion, of going back and forth in interstate commerce for abortion services. They can do everything that they could do with the national ban with the Comstock Act, and they're probably going to. So I say this over and over again. This next election, the Supreme Court is on the ballot once again. Thomas and Alito are septuagenarians. They are in their 70s. If there is a Republican president, they will step down and go off to their Walmart parking lots to sit in their Winnebago's and salmon fish for hours and hours. And when they do, that Republican president will replace them with literal teenagers, like younger than Eileen Cannon. And this conservative supermajority will literally last for another generation and a half. Those are the stakes. Those are the stakes. But until then, if you have some time, you should pick up this book. (laughs) The book is The Trump Indictments, The Historic Charging Documents with Commentary by Melissa Murray and Andrew Weissman, two friends of the pod. That's right. You heard me, Melissa. You're both friends of the pod now. How do you feel about that? I mean, I've known you longer. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying we're not closer. I'm not saying you're sitting. You're you're sitting to my. Cl- you're sitting closer I mean, to my I table did at the take wedding. You, I did take you to Belize. Okay. <laughs> Next year in Belize. Thank you both so much. That was great. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having us. All right. Thanks to Melissa and Andrew for joining us today. We'll have a new pod for you on Wednesday. I will be uh, hosting with. Mehdi Hassan will be back on the pod. Bye, everyone. If you want to get ad-free episodes, exclusive content, and more, consider joining our Friends of the Pod subscription community at crooked.com slash friends. And if you're already doom scrolling, don't forget to follow us at Pod Save America on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube for access to full episodes, bonus content, and more. Plus, if you're as opinionated as we are, consider dropping us a review. Pod Save America is a Crooked Media production. Our show is produced by Olivia Martinez and David Toledo. Our associate producers are Saul Rubin and Farah Safari. Kira Wakim is our senior producer. Reed Churlin is our executive producer. The show is mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Jordan Cantor is our sound engineer with audio support from Kyle Seglin and Charlotte Landis. Writing support by Hallie Kiefer. Madeline Herringer is our head of news and programming. Matt DeGroat is our head of production. Andy Taft is our executive assistant. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Haley Jones, Mia Kelman, David Tolls, Kirill Pelaviv, and Molly Lobel. What if millions of Black Americans had been repaid for slavery? Join MSNBC's Trimaine Lee as he explores the untold story of one of the only Black Americans who ever was. He talks to his descendants and discusses how reparations forever change their family's trajectory and imagine a reality where reparations are granted to many others. Into America presents Uncounted Millions, The Power of Reparations, a Black History Month series. New episodes drop Thursdays. Search for Into America to follow and listen to the series. Escape to Ocean City, Maryland, and discover a place that just feels lighter, where every day feels like Saturday and French fries are a food group. 
where flip-flops are always in fashion and seafood is always in season, where the boardwalk is bustling and the beach is right outside your door, where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com. Did you know that more than 113,000 children are waiting to be adopted from foster care? Ellie was one of them. When she was placed in foster care at 16 after experiencing significant abuse, she felt unlovable. Thankfully, Ellie was adopted with help from the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption. Today, she's planning on college and has a bright future. But more than 20,000 teens age out of care every year. You can help. Visit DaveThomasFoundation.org slash learn more.